we're going to follow his lead. And today, because what we have is our stories, right? What we have is ourselves. This is how we most learn from one another. Um, we are going to talk about individuals and our individual experience and our interpersonal experience of racism. We're also going to try and move it up to think about these systems that we're a part of. Because it's systems that formed us, right? The schools that we went to, the neighborhoods that we lived in, the governments that ordered our lives in law. The systems formed us, and it's also systems that we're going to have to change. So we're going to try and talk about both today. And part of that is the inspiration we find in the words of Paul and the scripture that was read to us before this sermon. Paul was a follower of Jesus who had lived a life that he loved in Jesus, right, where he felt like he had done good things and right things. He had started churches. And he writes this letter to the Philippians when he's in jail, when a lot of our greatest literature has been written, right, from prison. Letter from a Birmingham jail, autobiography of Malcolm X, half the New Testament written from jail. <laughs> a lot of folks in jail in Christian history. Uh, he writes that he's tempted to just focus on that love that he has for Christ and that love that Christ has for him and live in that joy, right, to live in the joyful parts and to maybe even let himself die because he's in a pretty dire situation. Um, but he's not going to because it's not just about him. It's about a whole community. He's not going to because we don't achieve individual salvation. We get salvation together. We're going towards a kingdom, not each our own little house, right, where God gives us what we want, but towards a community where we live together in a beautiful, just, and gorgeous way that God intends. So it's for the community that we move from joy and our experiences to thinking about the whole thing, to thinking about the whole church and what it means for us to progress, as he says, to progress and speak boldly together. So together, let's start. And thank you all for doing this. They are being vulnerable and brave and wonderful doing this. So we are so grateful to them. First, we're going to ask how race and racism, um, how your understanding of that was informed growing up. How did you get to the place where you're at in race and racism? And Carter, let's start with you. Yeah, sure. Um, so for me, I guess an experience that I've had throughout my life, like over and over, is people asking me the question, what are you? And I really hate that question a lot because it kind of presumes from the beginning that I am a what and that I'm not a who. I'm not a person. I have to be like this other thing. And when people would ask me that when I was growing up and like still today, uh, <laughs> it's very isolating and dehumanizing to kind of have someone look at you and not see you as a person from the beginning and to kind of need to know this information about like what I am before they can even begin to look at who I am and engage with me on a person-to-person -person level. Yeah. Yeah, and that seems like it's a part of the distress of it, right? That they uh, somehow, but what's going to change, depending on my answer, right? What's going to change about how you treat me? So you said that you've gotten this question a lot. What are some of the ways you've responded to it? So that's really dependent a lot on, on the people I'm with. If I'm, if I'm like meeting a whole group of new people at once, and like one random person asks me what I am, it's a lot of pressure on me to not just be angry and tell them off about how angry that question makes me feel because I don't want all these people that I don't really know that well to think I'm just this mean, angry person that doesn't want to talk to people and won't respond to questions. And so I have to kind of like dehumanize myself and be like, okay, I'll, I'll respond to that question and take that question seriously even though I hate it a lot. <laughs> but when I'm with people that I, that I know and that I love and that I care about and know how to communicate with, I can 
I can talk to them and kind of tell them like this is this is what that question sounds like to me, and that's why I would rather you not ask it that way. And if you want that information, I like I know what information you're asking for, <laughs> but if you want that, then you should ask it a different way, and I'll decide if I'm going to share that with you. Yeah. Shannon, how did you come to understand um, race and racism? What are the experiences that informed you? So, spoiler alert, I'm white. Um, and that means I've had the privilege for most of my life, or all of my life, to not have to think about race. I can go about my daily life, and I don't have to think about it. I don't have to engage with it, ever. Um, and for most of my life as a kid, um, I didn't go to a 100% white school, but it was 95% white. Um, and so it was mostly history, right? Race and racism, it was what we learned in history class. Um, thankfully, in my family, um, it wasn't just the incomplete history that you get in your textbooks. Um, my grandparents fought redlining in Chicago in the 60s and 70s. My great aunt uncle adopted a black baby girl in the 60s. Um, but it was still history. Um, and it wasn't until really about three years ago that it really truly started to become something real and something now um, when I met a man named Pastor Michael McBride uh, who works for Pico National Network. Um, but there were glimmers of it up until that point. And one time in 2008, I was working for um, a congressional candidate in Western Michigan. Uh, he is a former Marine captain, um, still carries himself like a former Marine captain. Um, he's also black. And we were going up to rural West Michigan to talk to a precinct captain and introduce ourselves. And this old white guy, trying so hard to be respectful and trying so hard to engage in this conversation in a positive way, the best way he could think of to refer to my candidate was boy. It was the most respectful word he could come up with. And apparently my face, I don't remember, was this like expression of utter shock um, that my candidate made fun of me for a long time afterwards. But that was the first, one of the first times that race and racism in my world was a here and now thing and not a history thing. Yeah. So part of how the racist system works in the United States is that it's based on white supremacy, right? That um, white is the norm, white is the source of power, white is uh, not like questioned or pointed out. And so often white people don't think about race until later in their life because we're told that we are um, the, the base, right? Um, you also thought about race and racism you were sharing with us later in your life, but for a totally different reason. So how did race and racism, how did you learn about it? How did you get informed about it? Well, I was born and raised in Mexico. And when we were actually having this conversation, I was uh, asking Carter, or ask, Carter asked me, what is it that you put on the census in Mexico? And my grandmother is right here. She's missing for six weeks. Um, and... I was her grandma. So, what what is it? What does it look like in uh, for ethnicity in in Mexico? And she's like, well, nothing. You just put nationality. Either you're Mexican or you're not. And so, I remember a couple years ago, uh, in my my mom was filling out the census here, and she was checking out white because by default, um, uh, Mexicans or Latin non-black Latinos are uh, classified as white. And she was checking all this for like her family members white. And then once she got to my dad, uh, she said, wait, 
but that's not white because my dad is really dark uh, skin, Mexican dark skin. And it was a moment for us to start having this conversation around race and color because it was um, different. And I never had to identify as anything but Mexican when I was in Mexico. When I came here um, 13 years ago in the ESL and bilingual program in high school, there were a lot of other students who were from uh, El Salvador, Ecuador, in some places. And people would ask them, so what part of Mexico are you from? They would say, I'm not Mexican, so it's Salvadoreño, Ecuatoriano, uh, de Honduras. And so to me, that made an impact because it was then that I had to identify myself as Mexican. Um, and race was this convoluted idea um, that was more tied to nationality rather than color or race, which was confusing. Um, and I had to go back sort of into American history to understand that concept and what it meant, which then started me think, thinking about the internalized racism that is in a lot of Latin American cultures, especially in Mexican culture due to the uh, colonial um, history of our country. Yeah. So all of us come to this understanding a different way of what race is, of what racism is. We're taught different things. We experience different things. Um, but being in America means dealing with it, right? It means that it's a part of our experience and a part of our community. Um, so one of the ways that we resist racism or we experience it is at that interpersonal level. How do we begin to break it apart? How do we begin to chip away at it? Uh, and this, I'm just going to say, this is going to be hard. This has been hard for me with all of these sermons to both be clear about the nature of racism in our society and to understand that many of us have been the victims of the kinds of microaggressions and structural oppressions that we're gonna use as examples is hard. Um, so we're, we're seeking to strike a balance and uh, yeah, we'll pray for each other after, right? And we'll help each other after and we'll, we'll reflect. So what are some of the ways that you have either experienced internally or interpersonally racism and started to resist it within yourselves or seen really good methods of resistance? Start with you this time, Shannon. Um, so I'll be honest, again, I have the privilege of turning off the news. I can turn off um, the pain that racism inflicts because I have that privilege. Um, but one of the things that I have really been struggling with for the past 18 months um, is how to raise a white male. A white male who is aware of his privilege and a white male who is actively anti-racist. Um, it's been an issue that I was working on before he was born and that I um, you know, worked alongside Pastor Mike uh, passionately. But in a moment in the car on the way home from the hospital, it became real. Um, the next day was his full day home from the hospital and the man who murdered Michael Brown was let off the hook. And I sat in that rocking chair in that room holding my son knowing that there are mothers like Michael Brown's mother, who never got told him again, that there are mothers within two miles of my house who worry about their kids going across the street to the park, a worry that I will never have. Um, and so it's a really hard struggle of what do I do? How do I teach him something that I never thought about as a kid? And I was never given the tools as a kid. Um, and so right now, that looks like, and I think we may have a picture. Um, uh, there he is. 
three weeks old <laughs> across the street in December um, at a UVC Black Lives Matter protest. Um, it looks like being intentional about choosing books and media that he's exposed to so that he hears stories that aren't about white little boys. Um, and um, it means finding community outside of people that look like us. Um, there's a study that talks about how our social circles are 90% people who look like us, and that's a big problem. Um, and so how do we help him break that? Um, and I said this earlier, I can't, I can't do this all by myself. Um, and so many of you are so helpful in teaching David, in teaching Lydia and Annabelle and all of the children here, Caden and Kenny, about what it means to be anti-racist and what it means to live in your, and acknowledge your privilege. So I want to thank all y'all for that. Carter, how do you resist racism in an interpersonal way at that individual everyday kind of level? Uh, so I think every day, my everyday job is I'm an educator and I work with students in a reading and writing enrichment program. So I like to do what I call corrupting the youth and teaching them, <laughs> and teaching them all these ways that they can resist and all of these stories that are available to them to connect with and to feel empowered by. And so I had one student that I was reading the autobiography of Malcolm X with and she just sat down one day and she's like, Carter, this book is so inspiring. And that just like made my week to hear a student come in and feel so affirmed and feel so empowered by reading like the story of this really amazing person and how she could connect with that and how she could see that reflected in her own lives and how she could find ways to resist based on like reading the stories of people that aren't just like old white guys. And that's like a really big part of my, my curriculum, I guess, is like choosing books by different authors that they're not going to be exposed to probably in their, in their regular curriculum. So we're finding some ways to raise up the next generation right. <laughs> what about the current generation? <laughs> what about us inside of ourselves? Maria, what's a way that you have found yourself having to resist internalized or interpersonal racism? So you mentioned how our, our, our group or social group tends to be about 95%? 90-something yeah. 90 90 percent. I'm an organizer, not a mathematician. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, around people who look like us. So for a long time, I have worked. Uh, doing immigrant rights advocacy with a lot of immigrants. The majority of them in the Chicagoland area have been Mexicans, uh, Central Americans, some African immigrants, and uh, Middle Eastern uh, primarily. Um, and so I had never had to think about race. And I'm also an organizer and an activist, so I believe that I'm perfect and <laughs> that um, I have this self-righteousness about myself, right? where I know what racism is, and um, I know what classism is. Uh, I'm not uh, xenophobic. I'm not uh, racist, because I'm an organizer, and I'm all for social justice. And so when I started uh, my job at Community Renewal Society, which is a faith-based organization uh, addressing racism and poverty, I started working a lot with uh, black churches. And one of the first things that I did in my job as an organizer last summer was um, doing uh, voter registration in uh, Austin and um, other areas of, in North Lawndale, too. 
And I remember my, um, my ex-boyfriend, that he would tell me, it's so dangerous to be here. There's a lot of black people, and um, there's a lot of crime, and all these things, and you shouldn't be by yourself. And I said, no, it's fine. You know, uh, he said, you're crazy. And I said, well, crazy is my middle name. I do these things all the time. But um, I remember trying to register people, and a lot of them didn't want to register. And I would get so upset and so angry. And I started blaming them for their situation. I would think to myself, it's your fault that you're in this situation. This is why the black community in Chicago are so messed up, because you are not part of the civic engagement, because you have the choice to get out of this hole and you're not. It is your fault that, that your streets are run by uh, drugs, that you have uh, high incarceration, incarceration rates. It is your fault that your education system has failed you. And so I started to individualize and blame black people that I was encountering with for their situation. Uh, and like I said, I know better and I couldn't and I am an organizer working to address racism and poverty in a faith-based organization, working with churches to address the same thing. So I went to my, uh, to my supervisor. He's a white man. And I told him, you know, I'm really struggling with this because I don't know what to name it. I know it's wrong, but I don't know why or how. Um, and it makes me feel terrible. And so he said, you know, have you thought about all the internalized racism that you have? And um, it was also in a very strong and loving way, uh, telling me, you know, there is, we live in a white supremacist culture. Um, and even you as an immigrant and your upbringing in the Mexican culture, a lot of understanding of race or whiteness to be a good thing. And then also the way that we're taught um, where poverty and racism comes from is as something that is individual, that if you just work hard enough, you're gonna be able to address those things. And it's hard. It was tough for me to start thinking about the ways in which I think of blame people for their situation rather than thinking of the institution and the systemic things that keep people from surviving and from thriving. So it's an everyday struggle. It's sometimes shameful, but I cannot allow my shame and my guilt to keep me from doing my job because I have a big responsibility to work with the churches that I do. Um, so addressing that and being able to open with my leaders and hear from them. There is a leader from UVC South Loop who's a recovering alcoholic who also told me, I'm a recovering racist. <laughs> and that hit home so hard. It was so humbling and so important to me to hear that from him because I think that that is the way in which I can address um, the, the, in an individual level, internalized racism with my community. No matter how much work we've done, we often find more within ourselves, right? So it is like working the steps. You have to work the steps of notice the racism, find it in yourself, start to chip away at it, ask others if you're truly reflecting that. You have to work the steps. Also, I find it so inspiring what you share, or so helpful, I guess, because this is also, just like white supremacy, white supremacy is a part of the system in America, anti-blackness is a really core part of the system in America um, that has been used to divide people of color from one another, um, 
really frequently, and that also is a part of um, right the ways in which uh, the feminist movement is still racist. <laughs> the LGBT rights movement is still racist because these become wedges, the racism that lives inside of us that we don't get rid of. And so all of us have a harder time finding freedom. All of us have a harder time finding liberation because there's one form or another of discrimination and bigotry, often, unfortunately, anti-blackness, that continues to live in our culture and continues to live in us if we don't directly challenge it. And it's for all the reasons that you said, right, that the interpersonal, it is personal. We need to do the personal work. And all of us, right, could do the work, become fancy, perfect, anti-racist, not a thing. But if it was a thing, we could become it. Um, and still, like, housing would be segregated and schools would be segregated. So that structural and systemic awareness is essential if we're ever going to move forward. So part of the question is, how do we make structural and systemic change? Um, so I want to start with you, Shannon. So I'm um, fortunate that I have a job that allows me to um, challenge systemic injustice. Um, I'm a communications consultant, um, and what that means, um, I annoy members of the media. Grace Wong was here, she could tell you. Um, she works for the Tribune. Um, and I help, but more importantly, I help people tell their stories, and I help them find a platform to tell their stories, and I help them amplify their stories. Um, it sometimes puts me in the awkward position of being the white girl from the suburbs telling <laughs> the story of a black man from um, downtown LA, but um, it's what I do. Um, and I guess one example, so I mentioned Pastor Michael McBride earlier. Um, he is the leader of um, so in, in an organization called Pico National Network, which is a faith-based community organizing group. Um, he's the leader of the Live Free campaign that works on gun violence and mass incarceration, um, police brutality and other anti-racism, getting rid of systemic injustice. And they go in and they help local communities organize um, to respond to these issues. Uh, and so when, after Michael Brown was killed, um, I was in DC and uh, they got um, a request from people in the Ferguson area to come in and help, help the youth find their voice, help the youth stand up and make change. Um, and so they went in. And so I had friends and colleagues on the ground in Ferguson at the height of the unrest in Ferguson. And I was in DC helping to keep track of them, keep tabs on them, and to tell their story to the media. So there was one night, I don't know if you remember, um, it was a week of not a lot of sleep for any of us. Um, there were stories that um, protesters had been throwing Molotov cocktails and other things at the police. Um, and it was three or four o'clock in the morning in DC and I was awake. Um, and I'm seeing my friends' posts who were on the front lines, taking pictures, you know, um, encouraging the youth who said they didn't see anything from their position. They saw no rocks fly. They saw no bottles fly. What they did experience was being tear gassed by police, by police that they couldn't understand the, what the police were saying, all of a sudden showed up and began to march into them and... Um, so we had the media telling the story that the protester started it. And you had people who were there on the ground saying that's not true. And so my job and the way that I resist is to help those people share their stories with the media um, 
to call CNN and MSNBC um, and elsewhere to say, hey, you should talk to this person. You should talk to Pastor Mike and you should talk to Pastor Al because they can tell you what happened. They were there. Um, and so helping to tell stories is my way of resisting. So there are a couple forms of resistance in there, right? There's protesting, which helps to put pressure on institutions that we think need to change and being honest about that change. There's the interpersonal stuff, right, of getting on social media and saying, this isn't the truth, this isn't what happening, what's happening. And then there's that personal two structural thing that you do of amplifying voices because you have um, the power to do so, right, to lift up voices that often aren't listened to by those structures. They move back and forth. Um, so, Carter, what does that mean to you? How do you think of this resistance to structural racism? Yeah, so I see the, the kind of, I don't really see as much of a barrier between the systemic and the individual. I think they both work together, they inform each other, they reinforce each other, and they all kind of build up to this really horrible stuff. But, <laughs> so, I do see, like, every individual action you take, all the interpersonal interactions you have, that those are a part of these systems, and they inform these systems. And so to me, that means that a lot of my, like I think of all the conversations I have with people as affecting the system and as being reflections of the system or pushing back against the system. And like the whole model of like the personal is political and that everything I do in my personal life is a reflection of my political values and how I hope to see the world. And so like I like to have conversations with people that I love and care about and tell them like this, this maybe like this thing that you did is really not okay and here's all these reasons why. And I hope that you love and respect me enough to listen and hear me out and think about how that works in your life. And then also listening to other people when they want to tell me about these things that I do that are not okay. <laughs> and being ways to transform these systems through like pressuring individuals. Maria, structural change and systemic change are your job. <laughs> You're an organizer. So how do you think of this part of resisting racism? So when she gave me this question, I told her I was just going to, <laughs> but then she said, I can do that. Um, so, so there's the, my job as an organizer is to develop relationships, to build relationships uh, in my churches, create faith in action teams, uh, teams of people who work, um, who are part of our larger campaigns. So there's the individual thing, how we build power. And then the second component is doing um, campaign work that addresses those issues. So we look at racism as this big thing that we cannot solve. We can't. But what we can do is we can break it apart into little areas, and then those, those little areas in organizing, we call them uh, cutting issues. So we cut an issue or a little piece of the pie, and then we aim to solve that little piece of the pie. Mm. And so it's... It's, it's in one way doing the individual work so that developing these relationships with my leaders uh, so that we can learn from each other, challenge each other, and grow. And at the same time, as a collective, we move with a lot of power to change some of these dynamics. For example, we are working on a fair cops ordinance, which some of you are familiar with, with it. You went on Palm Sunday to the police station. Um, we have been meeting with aldermen, it has been introduced as an ordinance, and that is one way that we address the structural. But again, because in my job as an organizer, I can only be as powerful and as effective as the individual relationships that I have built with my churches. Which a lot of times, 
uh, especially working in primarily white uh, suburban churches in DuPage County, a lot of times means having these conversations about race and privilege. And you've done us the, the uh, other kind of privilege, honor, I guess it would be a better word, less confusing word in this context, um, of inviting us into some of that structural work that you're doing. So I know many of the people in this room have gone to a protest with Community Real Nose Society or gone to a rally or had a one-on-one -on -one with an alderman to tell them about what you care about. Yesterday we were out canvassing, right, going from door to door and one of the getting people to sign uh, petitions. And one of the things I love about canvassing is that it helps me connect um, both like my personal experience to the system but also the social experience of racism to my experience of God. Because the way that I experience people is as like these gift-wrapped, amazing presents, right, that God made um, that have these wonderful parts of them. And also most of us, right, have like a little thing hanging out in the box that's like not perfect and that we don't like very much. But um, we're all unique and wonderful. There are uh, great things about us. And so when I'm canvassing, I'm not only trying to convince people to sign a petition, but I'm also trying to see like the gift that God gave to the world in them. And that helps give me the courage that Paul talks about um, to progress with joy in the midst of exhaustion, to uh, work with hope in the midst of tiredness and hopelessness against these big things because my faith in God and my understanding of God's creation is connected to my understanding of race and racism. We're in a church today, right? Not a town hall. And so um, that's one thing I want to ask all of you guys to end is where is God? In your resistance, where is God in your struggle? I'm gonna start with you, Carter. <laughs> so for me, God is there in knowing that I'm fighting on the right side and that God is on my side and gives me all of this strength to keep moving forward, even when things seem like super hopeless, which is pretty often, but like we're gonna keep going. <laughs> and so it's knowing that when you read the Bible and you see the work that Jesus is doing, that like that's the work that we're doing now in fighting in fighting all of these awful systems and like the systemic oppression that ruins lives. And knowing that the kingdom, that God's kingdom, the, the world that we're building towards, God's world, is going to come. And that's not really, like, even if I can't accomplish that in my lifetime, that it will be here in the future. And that I can begin working for that and building that for future generations to enjoy. Amen. Hallelujah. <laughs> Shannon, where is God in your resistance, in your journey? So I'll be honest, it's actually really hard sometimes to see God. Um, I live, because of my job, I live in the headlines. Um, so I frequently am seeing the latest time that um, an unarmed black person is killed by police. I'm seeing you know, the next time, and I'm sure I'll see them, sadly, um, this weekend, the stories of the children and teens who um, aren't gonna survive Memorial Day weekend because of gun violence in Chicago. Um, so it is really hard. Um, but it is in these glimmer of moments um, where people come together. So um, my job took me to Orlando a couple years ago. Um, and we were doing um, a training through PICO National Network, um, helping people learn how to tell their stories, helping people mobilize and organize um, to draw attention to issues. Um, and the issue down in one of the many issues down in Florida um, is that um, there are over a million Americans who no longer have the right to vote um, because of a past felony conviction. They have served their time. They're trying to re um, start over, get their much-deserved second chance, but they can't vote. Um, but that also means 
They don't have access to food stamps and public housing. It's a lot harder to find a job. Um, so they're kind of shoved out the door after they've served their time and said, good luck. Um, you don't get anything. Uh, and so we were down there to help mobilize around this. Um, and we were leading a march, or they were leading a march. Um, I just had the honor of participating. Um, and we were in Pam Bondi, is the current Secretary of State. She's in charge of kind of overseeing this policy and restoring rights. Um, a march to her office to demand a meeting that she just sit down and hear these stories and meet these people. Um, and we filled up the lobby, and people had their Let My People Vote posters, um, and they had bandanas, some were used um, to cover the mouth to symbolize the silencing um, of the systemic injustice that were American flag colored. Um, but somebody started singing, ain't nobody gonna turn me around, turn me around, turn me around, ain't nobody gonna turn me around. And I'm standing there, and that's church. Right there, all these people coming together, ignoring those walls and fighting. And in that moment, God was there. Where do you find God in your journey to resist? I work with churches. Um, and I think to hear uh, the testimony from people and why they do this work. So when I hear uh, young people uh, corrupting the minds of the young, when I hear recovering racist, um, and when I hear these, um, these strive to change, I know that it's there. Um, I'm not Spider-Man, but um, I do know there's something that resonates with me, which is when um, uh, Peter Sankel tells him, with great power comes great responsibility. And I know a lot of people who were, um, my parents are undocumented, and they work really, really hard. Um, and I know a lot of really bright, hardworking people who, don't, who did not go to college, who maybe haven't even learned English and not as successful and privileged as I am. I'm not that successful, but privileged I am. Um, and I know that that is a blessing. That privilege um, was, is a gift from God, and I have to live according to to God's will, which is to to have peace, to create love, to create fair communities, and I could not do justice to all the gifts that he has given me if I didn't uh, try to give back. And also, I have my family who bring me down from my clouds if I get to <laughs> They're good that way. <laughs> One of the things that Paul wrote to the Philippians was that um, he was tempted, as many Christians have been throughout time, to just live in his joyful experience of God, right? Like, I have a relationship with God. It makes me feel good. Maybe I should just follow that and stay there and not pay attention to what he called flesh, to ignore the parts of our lives that were hard, right, that made us, that reminded us of um, all the ways in which we've been broken and flawed and the world has been broken and flawed and gone away from God's intention for it. But that's the journey of being a Christian, <laughs> is not just living in the joy and the hope, but saying that the joy and the hope are real in our bodies. The joy and the hope are real in this fleshly world. The joy and the hope are real 
even in brokenness. And as we live in a world that has been marred by racism, by homophobia, by sexism, by plain old meanness and cruelty, right? Because <laughs> it doesn't take an ism for us to be jerks to each other. Um, that as we live in that world, the joy and the hope we have, our knowledge of Christ's love for us and love for all, means that we don't just hope for the future, but that we hope for now. That we can change ourselves and change the structures so that even if it's lifetimes from now, everyone gets a glimpse of what we know, which is that extraordinary love and hope. For this we give thanks and we do the work inside of ourselves and the work on the world. Amen. 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 And let's thank Shannon, Maria, and Carter.